six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio. Thank you for listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. We are Madison's listener-supported community radio. It is Monday, July 25th, 2022, and I'm your host, Karma Chavez. Thanks to Rochelle and Jade for having me to be here with you today. And I thought I'd mention that uh, this is my uh, 10-year anniversary on WORT. So 10 years ago today, I hosted my first ever show. Uh, So pretty cool to be actually back here on the exact day. Um, I love being able to be here on WRT, even if it's from afar. So thank you all so much. This year marks the 31st anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The ADA stands as a landmark law that has literally opened the doors for millions of people living in the United States. The ADA is civil rights legislation modeled on the 1964 Civil Rights Act and prohibits discrimination and guarantees that people with disabilities have the right to enjoy employment opportunities, to purchase goods and services, and to participate in state and local government programs and services. Over the last several decades, activism, out of which the ADA was born, has continued to flourish and fight, setting new standards for accessibility, what inclusivity actually looks like, and how to build intersectional movements. Yet struggles around race and racism persist as disabled folks of color, often queer and trans, create their own analyses and their own spaces of belonging while still working for a broad intersectional movement for disability justice. In today's show, we're going to look at two sides of this ongoing struggle. We're going to start with professor and writer Joe Shu about their new book, Constellating Home, Trans and Queer Asian American Rhetorics from Ohio State University Press. Shu's book, which explores storytelling and practices of home creating among queer and trans Asian American activists, also puts disability at the center of their work. Their work responds to the conspicuous absence of disability in Asian American studies and the corresponding whiteness of disability studies. In the second part of the show, we'll talk with local disability activists, Jason Blounge and Martha Saravo, who are integral to putting on this weekend's Disability Pride Festival, which will be Saturday, July 30th from 12 to 5 p.m. at Warner Park. But first, let me introduce Dr. Shu. Joe is an assistant professor of rhetoric and writing, core faculty for the Center for Asian American Studies, and a faculty affiliate of the LGBTQ Studies Program at the University of Texas at Austin, where we are colleagues. They hold a PhD in rhetoric and composition and an MFA in creative writing, and they are the author of the forthcoming book, Constellating Home, Trans and Queer Asian American Rhetorics, which will be out next month from the Ohio State University Press. Uh, Professor Shu, welcome to A Public Affair. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, I'm excited about your book, and I think other uh, people will be too. And so, folks, if you're listening and you want to join our conversation, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also post to our Facebook page, A Public Affair, or you can tweet us at Wart Talk, and we'll be happy to get your your questions or your, your comments on the air. So, Joe, you're a scholar of rhetoric, and your work also intersects with Asian American, queer and trans, and disability studies. And so, I guess maybe for folks who aren't really familiar with rhetoric, what does rhetoric do, and why is it an important framework to intersect with these other bodies of work? Sure. So, 
My favorite definition of rhetoric comes from Jay Dolmage, which is the strategic study of the circulation of power through communication, which might be a mouthful, um, but mostly I think through how power shapes how we communicate with each other and how those forms of communication in turn shape the ways that we encounter each other in the real world. And so for me, as somebody who uses this approach to study you know, real life politics, it's impossible to separate uh, communication from the ways that we understand each other, right? So my focus is storytelling. So that's kind of the lens I put on everything, but really the way that anything comes to mean is the story that we give it, right? An event is just a series of happenings until we put it into a, this happened because, or because this happens, I will do whatever. But it's that story, it's the way that we shape the language around the thing that happened that really determines how we react to the conditions that we're given, the harms that happen around us, um, what relationships we form in the future, that sort of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. And of course, that's uh, quite different from maybe some of the traditional definitions of rhetoric that you and I are both familiar with, you know, sort of uh, really focusing on persuasion, uh, influencing other people. Um, and, and this turn to, to, to look how power circulates, of course, then makes it a, a, a great uh, companion to ethnic studies, to gender studies, to disability studies. And so in getting a little bit into the specifics of your book, one of the central concepts that you introduce is this idea you call homing. And what is homing? <laughs> so it comes from my favorite language fact, uh, which is that in Mandarin Chinese, uh, which was my first language, the phrase for author or writer is jia. So technically it's two words put together into a phrase. And the first word zuo means to make. And the latter word, jia, is home or family. And so together, the phrase that composes writer is really to make a home. Um, and I thought, as a writer, that's a beautiful way to think through what it is that we're doing with writing and with storytelling. So that's, that's where I begin. I'm also playing with the double meaning of home and homing in English, uh, homing being that sort of instinctual ability of animals to find their way back from a place of origin. And as uh, someone who's a child of migrants, I'm thinking through what does home or finding a home mean for a child of, of immigrants? Um, somebody whose journey to the United States was catalyzed by multiple wars and you know, uh, who lands in a place that is basically uh, what Manu Karuka calls a political economy that's maintained by ongoing colonial occupation. So, as someone who comes to this place uh, with that history, I was thinking through what does it mean to make a home, right? From all of the conflicts that brought me here to all of the conflicts that I landed in, uh, what is it to claim home in a place that I don't feel any necessary entitlement to? Uh, and so homing as a way to think about how language helps us do that. Uh, so again, thinking about power and language, how the ways that we tell this story of how we got here and what we do once we're here, how that shapes who gets to belong here, what are the conditions of that belonging, what do we do about it? Um, so for me, homing names the stories that we tell uh, in order to illuminate uh, the conditions of belonging and also to act on them, to change them. Yeah, I think that it really comes across in your book that that's your your project and that the storytelling that happens is 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 uh, absolutely not just changing but creating something new 
um, which I think is, is, is really powerful. And I guess related to that term is uh, an, the idea of constellation or constellating. And I think it, you take that from indigenous thinkers. And so what does it mean to constellate stories and why is that such an important political practice? Yeah, absolutely. So I come to the term through cultural rhetorics, but uh, it has a longer tradition through a lot of uh, indigenous communities and theories and constellations. I mean, if you think about the word and the metaphor, we're talking about uh, meaning that you draw among stars, right? Individually, the stars are just points in the sky, but when we create a constellation, we're creating an, a different meaning from that, right? And just like you can create an infinite possible number of uh, sort of images when you draw them among the stars, you can create an infinite numbers of meanings when you're telling a story and when you're creating a sort of narrative around a set of events. And so at its heart, constellations are about relationships, right? Uh, Leanne Simpson writes beautifully about this, uh, thinking about constellations as a foundation of Anishinaabeg thought. Um, and she talks about them as place-based relationships, as land-based relationships. So thinking about meaning is very particular to where you are, where you're from, who you're in relationship with. And for me, that was the first time that writing and you know scholarship what it is we do really made sense to me that it wasn't me speaking into the void but it was me creating meaning in community with people right and with whom i do that how i honor those relationships is a critical part of how i think through what it is i'm doing with this thing um, and so thinking about storytelling as a form of constellating you're thinking about who does this story put me in relationship with? How am I honoring those relationships? And then thinking about stories themselves as in constellation, right? Like if I tell this particular story of Asian American history, how does it fit into the other stories that we have of Asian American history? How does it maybe change how we think about how Asian Americans fit into the United States? Um, and so I, I appreciate the way that constellating helps us think about ourselves in community and also brings into that a sort of responsibility that comes with thinking about the different amounts of power that we bring into that community and what do we do with that? Yeah, that's one of the things that's really powerful uh, about your book is the the care with which you, you, you take the people that you're in community with who create what in scholarly terms we would call the data uh, upon which you build the book. And I think with this term also, listening to you talk, it's not just, of course, the theorists that bring you to this, but it comes to be the appropriate way to think about things because of the work you do in, in these communities. And we won't have time to have you share, you know, all the details about all these groups you, you worked with, but I wonder if you could give the audience just a sense of uh, some of these communities that you were working with um, that you write about in the book and, um, you know, what, what they were up to. Yeah, sure. So I'll go with a concrete example, uh, since those tend to be more illuminating. Um, I'm looking at different uh, groups that specifically highlight stories of queer, trans, and disabled Asian Americans. And an, an important part of how I think about story is that when you're creating a story from what is a marginalized experience, you're building knowledge uh, from a set of experiences in the world that are made to be illegible by what we have as dominant narratives. Um, so in that way, it honors the experience of these people as wisdom and thinks through how does that change the way that we should move in the world and with each other. And so one of the uh, archives that I'm looking at is uh, the Visibility Project by Mia Nakano. 
and she has sort of three sets of it, but she's thinking through the term resilience and the way that that has been used to shape the identity of Asian Americans in the United States. If you think through the stereotyping of Asian Americans, uh, whether that is the model minority or whether that is the yellow peril, the threat, the idea is that these are sort of robotic people who work sort of uh, admirably or threateningly uh, in a way that adheres to what we expect of, you know, um, indefinite production. Uh, and because of that, the sort of ability of Asian Americans to work through hardship has been a very core component of how we imagine them in the United States. Uh, from the very beginning, the term model minority comes from this 1966 article, and it's talking about how, you know, despite all that we put Japanese Americans through, despite Japanese American internment, they have become these successful middle class, you know, ideal immigrants. And in that case, that resilience is something that we're supposed to admire about them. And so in this project, Mia Nakano is thinking through, how do we imagine resilience differently? That isn't about praising individual striving, that isn't about making it the responsibility of the individual to work through the sort of systemic hardship that we've put them in. And uh, during one of her interviews, she's talking to Kay Ulande Barrett, who is this poet, artist, activist, brilliant, brilliant, um, disabled, trans, Philippinex artist, um, and they're talking about masculinity. And they're thinking through what does masculinity look like on this queer, disabled, brown body, right? Um, and thinking about resilience, traditionally, we assign masculinity to that form of working through hardships through a particular sort of embodied strength. And they're like, well, what if I can't perform that, right? Uh, or what if the only reason that strength is valued on my brown body is for its ability to create labor, right, for, for white accumulation of wealth? And so they're thinking through, how do I think about resilience and masculinity in relationship? And they talk about how uh, they only feel celebratory in their gender. Their expression of their gender is determined by how much in community they are, how safe they are. And the way they talk about it makes us think through, that's true of all of us, how, um, how we express ourselves, how we embody you know, our gender identity, whatever is determined by how safe we are in that setting. It's just that some people are sort of safe by default and some people are not, and we're made to think through that. And so by telling this story, by introducing it uh, to a set of narratives that otherwise wouldn't have known this, wouldn't have recognized this sort of experience, they're changing how we think about masculinity, resilience, Asian Americanness, disability. And so, um, I mean, that's just a tiny select excerpt from that book, but I'm thinking through how do these experiences and the strategic telling of these experiences change the way we think about race, disability, gender, sexuality, and people? How does it change the way we think about how people are made to belong uh, around us and with each other? Yeah, thank you for that. And if uh, you're just uh, joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM in Madison. We're talking with Professor Joe Shu and their book, Constellating Home, Trans and Queer Asian American Rhetoric rhetorics, which will come out next month from the Ohio State University Press. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can post to our a Public Affair Facebook page, or you can tweet us at Wart Talk, and we'll be happy to get your questions or, or, or comments on, on the air. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad that you just brought that last example up, uh, Joe, because I was going, going to ask you about that, and I... I um, just I find that one of the more uh, complicated and illuminating examples in the book, and I think it's helpful to really concretize what your project is. 
And one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, though, was I think one of the things that animates your book is this gap between Asian American studies and disability studies. Um, and it kind of goes both ways in terms of you sort of suggest that within Asian American studies that there's uh, not a lot of attention um, to disability and, and disability studies is still sort of woefully white, although it's getting increasingly more diverse with work like yours and it's changing the landscape. But um, this particular gap between Asian American and disability, you, you, you frame it as a kind of surprising gap. And I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit about why it should be obvious how we're thinking, why we should think those things together. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's both surprising and strategic, I think, in how the model minority myth functions. Um, so talking about resilience, um, the, the model minority myth is basically a story of ableism. It's a story of how hard you can work under conditions that are uh, that are inherently exploitative um, in order to become this sort of praiseworthy immigrant, right? In order to become uh, the, the other that belongs in the United States. And so inherently in that narrative is the exclusion of disability. And so part of my, one of my motives in telling these stories is what happens to the, the narrative of Asian Americans and of who belongs in the United States when you introduce these stories of these people who, who sort of dispel or destroy the myth of the model minority. Um, and so in order for that sort of image of Asian Americans to exist, we have to erase the presence of disability. We have to ignore how people are made to survive when they can't conform to, you know, um, a capitalist clock, when you can't go to work at a nine to five, when you can't uh, perform this sort of um, robotic worker that the model minority comes to symbolize. Um, and so I think it's critical, I think, to draw that link between disability studies and Asian American studies to highlight how this mythology uh, was shaped and then is later used as weaponized against other marginalized communities, right? Um, if these people can do it this way, why can't you? So I think it is both surprising and strategic. I don't know if surprising is quite the right word in that, in, in that sense. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. It's a it's I think strategic is a, exactly right. And you also bring up something uh, related to the the fact that in the COVID nineteen pandemic, maybe this uh, highlights this tension as as even more important to address. Would you like to elaborate more on that? Yeah. So um, one of the connections between what I was talking about in terms of constellating as an idea and also disability studies, why I'm drawn to these ideas in my own work, is that they emphasize relationality so much. Uh, disability is very much lived in relation. Uh, as a disabled person myself, I can't help but see the ways that my experience of the world affects the experience of my partner, my friends. Um, and this is both a difficult thing and sometimes a beautiful thing um, in that it teaches you to live in relation and it teaches you to honor those relations. So COVID-19 uh, sort of accelerated our understanding of that, or it should have, um, in that it showed us that health is not an individual responsibility necessarily, right? Whether, whether or not I catch COVID when I go outside is not shaped just by what I do, but what other people around me in those environments do. And when we create public policies that make it easier for folks to endanger others, uh, that shapes, again, sort of my options. So my options are not just about me, but about all of the, the histories, the politics, the cultures that surround me. Um, and so 
it's one of those moments in history where you look at it and it's like, it should give us this call to action. It should teach us that what we've been doing up until this point isn't working. Uh, and all it takes is this disruption to sort of expose all of the gaps in everything we took for granted as daily life. And in the most sort of optimistic narration of our moment, it would be a moment of reflection and a moment to think about how we do this differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think your book is uh, a call to that, and and not just a call to it, but but also provides some templates of what people are already doing, which I think is what's really important about your work. Is it's uh, it's not especially utopian; it's um, very very practical in in its way, uh, and and really showing the incredible things that that people are doing. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about that that struck me is so there, your own history, your own um, body mind, as you use the term, which I, I believe is a term Margaret Price originally mm-hmm. kind of introduced. Yeah. Um, so so you, you you locate yourself very much in, in this text and stories of your family history and in particular a story about a fire. Uh, that you experienced in your apartment right before you were about to embark on this research um, and how it's, um, you know, come to, to kind of constitute your own body mind as an archive in the work. Will you talk to us about the concept of the body mind as you're using it and then your own body mind as an archive in relation to these personal stories? Sure, absolutely. So body-mind as a word that tries to capture the ways that body and mind are inseparable. In academia, we like to pretend that we're all brains in jars, but when you have a body like mine that is sick a lot of the time, you realize that you know my ability to think on the spot in this moment is also dependent on how much pain I'm in, how nauseous I am, et cetera. So these things are inseparable um, in the ways that we move through the world. And when I'm thinking through my body, my body-mind as archive, I'm thinking through the ways that our sort of corporeal form, our bodies, uh, really do just record the events around us and the histories that bring us here. So concretely, the example of the fire, uh, my very first job as a professor, I was living in this place that I found on Craigslist, which I found on Craigslist because I couldn't afford to fly back to the place where I was working after all of the job interviews. I didn't have the time or the money. And... When I got there, I knew it was uncomfortable, but I'd also spent the last, I don't know, 12 years of my life living in places that were very uncomfortable. And so I kind of just accepted this as this is, this is what I, this is what I get. This is what home should be like. And when the fire happened, because my neighbors who were uh, somewhat belligerent and very irresponsible people uh, left a lit cigarette out, set the house on fire, it sort of felt like the natural conclusion of this feeling I got when I got there. And I was thinking through how that experience was made possible by the histories that brought me there, right? By the resources I had that compelled me to a certain decision about where I live. And then afterwards, after the fire, after running out of my house as it was, you know, uh, burning on a Saturday morning, I realized that for weeks I was sitting near doors in every room that I was in. I didn't notice this consciously, but somehow my body was remembering what that felt like and and had this anxiety built up about what if I would need to flee this at any given moment. So I was just naturally drifting toward the exit of every space that I was in. And so things like that, uh, the histories that have shaped how we've had to move through the world and that then inform the decisions we make that then shape how we feel and how we again move through the world and thinking through how that inseparability of our embodied selves from the histories and the cultures that are around us. 
yeah, I think uh, people will be delighted to, to read the way you integrate your own stories um, into what we might usually think of as, you know, academic prose, which can be a very different thing. But your, your MFA degree really shines through, I think, in the way that you capture some of these experiences and relationships. So I guess um, we're running about to the end of our time, but I, I wanted to ask you if you had one hope for the work that this book might do in the world, what would it be? Can I have two? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so two in that the book is sort of, it's written to academics because that is, I mean, not necessarily, but in part because my job requires me to publish in certain spaces. And in that space, I hope that it opens space for forms of storytelling and different forms of quote unquote research that are very careful about it, the ways it works in community that thinks about who's affected by the research that I do and how do I do this in a way that is very much in relation with the people, the histories, the cultures that inform and that are affected by my work. Um, and then more broadly, it is also a love letter to the Asian American queer, trans and disabled communities that have made me possible. And I guess if this is the, this is the one that if I get to highlight, uh, it's that it changes how we think about uh, Asian Americans in the history of the United States, that it embeds them. Well, for one, in the history of the United States, we often think about Asian Americans as perpetually Asian somehow. Um, so I hope that it brings that more into the history of how we think about race and gender and disability in this particular location. And I also really hope that, you know, um, versions of Joe <laughs> that are younger than me that are looking for the stories that I was seeking out, uh, find it and that they find maybe things they love about it, maybe things they want to change about it, and that they have this thing to write in conversation with uh, when they go to do their wonderful work. That's wonderful. That's lovely. And I think your uh, book will do all of that and a lot more. Uh, and so, Joe, we're going to have to leave our conversation there, but thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Again, our guest for the first part of the show today was Dr. Joe Shu, Assistant Professor of Rhetoric and Writing at the University of Texas at Austin and author of the forthcoming book next month, Constellating Home, Trans and Queer Asian American Rhetorics from the Ohio State University Press. And just as a reminder, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM here in Madison. We're now going to turn attention to two local guests who are part of Disability Pride Madison. Our first guest is Jason, Jason Belongi. He is Executive Director of Access to Independence. Jason is a longtime member of the independent living movement, including serving as a policy analyst for the National Council on Independent Living in DC before moving to work for Access. And our second guest is Martha Saravo, an active Madison parent, disability rights advocate, founding member of Madtown Mamas and Disability Rights Advocates, and Miss Wheelchair Wisconsin, a crown she wore for two years through the pandemic. She used both her Miss Wheelchair platform and her local organizing efforts to make funding for students with disabilities a statewide priority, among many other things. Jason and Martha, welcome to A Public Affair. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. So good to have you both here. Uh, so, uh, Martha, I'm just going to start with you, but both of you can feel free to jump in on any of these questions. So, uh, Disability Pride Madison is having its first festival in a while because of the pandemic, um, but it's still, as I understand it, an active coalition outside of the festival. And so, what is the work of Disability Pride Madison and, and who is involved? 
this year we're a little bit newer as far as some of the board members are concerned. So that's actually bringing in a lot of different ideas and different ways to highlight different artists that are not only local to here, but just artists that are out there uh, being representational um, of what it means to have a disability and just continue to live life, you know, as, as it is. Um, what we're trying to highlight through it is just bringing people into a space where either they feel that their peers are amongst them in the disability community, but definitely the people who don't actually get to see that community on a daily basis. Like come and see what it is, come and see where the highlights are, come and see what we what we see as strengths, um, what we just experience someone else's uh, someone else's joy through their eyes. And there's a lot of different vendors that are there that um, are there for um, different ways that uh, support people um, in, the, in the disabled community and across Wisconsin, both uh, family, caregivers, um, school, um, uh, because we have special education, uh, which is a constant need. And that's one that I highlighted during um, Miss Wheelchair Wisconsin reign as well. Um, so that, that's very close to my heart. Um, but like with the sports and the, we have the stage that's going to be set up. There's a lot of variety going on and not having this opportunity and this festival for a couple of years kind of gave us a lot of, a lot of opportunities. So like, how can we bring it back and how can we really make it shine once again? Mm-hmm. And uh, Jason, I'm going to turn to you. I think uh, Martha kind of answered uh, this already, but I'd love to hear from you. What do you think the importance is of having this kind of uh, pride festival? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as as Martha mentioned, it's building community uh, right here in our area. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's Disability Pride Month. And a lot of people have a lot of different identities when it comes to disability, in terms of types of disability, in terms of other identities. Uh, Your previous guest just talked about a lot of that too, which was wonderful. And I think is the strength of the movement is increasing our awareness and visibility of people of a variety of identities who have disabilities as well. Um, And celebrating disability as a natural part of, uh, of our human selves, right? And so it's getting to connect with the network and celebrate with other people with disabilities, whether it's a disability like yours uh, or not. Um, and again, there's not a, uh, there's a sense of we're, we're trying to be together and, and celebrate together and, and accomplish some cool things and then bring other recognition to non-disabled individuals um, who may still have very outdated views of what disability is um, in terms of, pity or helplessness, uh, inability, all those things that, that um, uh, the disability community in general continues to try to move people's viewpoints away from. And so demonstrating all the cool aspects of the community, it's a strong community, um, trying to bring people together, I think is a real strength of this event. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, the maybe the folks who are not in community and what, what their space is, because I, I was going to ask um, both what you see as the role of uh, allies in um, creating these kinds of events and um, the the role of education for something uh, like the festival. I don't know, Martha, if you want to take a first shot at that. Yeah, so part of just becoming familiar and being able to converse with someone else who may have a disability of some sort is just knowing how to ask the question. 
how do you engage with this person? How do you not make it awkward? How do you respect their autonomy and their space? If you know, while always at this maybe at the same time, if you're trying to offer help. And so this is a whole space of people that might say, hey, this is how I prefer to um, ask for help. Or if I don't need it, I super appreciate your offering because that's always appreciated across the board, no matter what they're doing. But I think it's more of the communication and recognizing that you don't have to sit there in uncertainty. You can definitely approach someone else and offer that connection, um, even if you're not used to it. Because some of some of about learning about someone else who's different than us is stepping out of our comfort zone and being able to have a very basic conversation and keep going, or to really start um, engaging with someone else and learn more about what makes their day uh, successful, or just to befriend them. Mm-hmm. Did you want to add to that, Jason? Yeah, I think as far as allyship, it's uh, understanding, learning, um, and recognizing that the the barriers that are existing um, are not the disability itself and the individual itself. It's the societal, institutional, educational, all these other barriers that, that are created that allies can use privilege to uh, help remove and reduce barriers and support policy and support local activities and, and engage, but understand, and, and not in a, a saviorism sort of way, uh, but really understanding uh, the needs from people with disabilities, uh, what an individual and a community itself needs, uh, and be engaged and supportive that way versus trying to solve the problem for somebody if you do not have that direct experience and identity yourself. And so, and I know that's there's a similar theme there for other communities as well. Um, but it, it's it's also the case in this community, and, and uh, uh, disability intersects many other communities and identities. And so there's aspects to learn from from those movements and those uh, uh, justice and civil rights activities as well. So um, I think that's what allies can do. But a good part of learning and understanding is engaging with and being a part of the community. And this weekend on Saturday at Warner Park is a great way to do that and to just network, engage, and support and learn. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I wanted to turn to some of the specific work that the the two of you do in the community. Uh, I think so folks who may not be familiar kind of get a sense of um, how, how vibrant the organizers of this type of event are and the work that's already going on. And uh, Martha, much of your work has focused on youth and education. And you've been quoted as saying, I'm going to quote you at length here uh, and then have you respond saying special education should not continue to be chronically underfunded and treated in a segregated and non-inclusive way, both state and federal. If districts were fully supported for special education needs, all students benefit. Special education exists within and enhances the general education experience. Inclusion is not simply integration. It's individualized support that allows us to appreciate diversity. Would you like to explain what you mean there? Oh, definitely. This is this is my this is my passionate subject around here. Um, it it's trying to get the idea across that in a classroom when you're succeeding at supporting special education kiddos in the way that is most meaningful to them, you're actually allowing the entire classroom to reap the benefits because not only is that child getting what they need from the get go, they're just not in the space because they deserve to be there. 
They're not just in the space because they're technically amongst their peers. They're actually in the school environment amongst peers, getting the proper support that they need, whether that's more individualized attention or some more time within the school environment to learn some more societal um, norms that are out there and just kind of see where they're at and learn how they do best for them as they go forward in their school career. So I've really focused on the the inclusion factor, inclusion versus integration, because inclusion meaning that we're actually doing meaningful things throughout their day and what their what the school staff is doing with them and how their peers are interacting with them, they're benefiting from it. They're just not simply being offered a service and technically their needs are being quote unquote met. They're actually they're they're moving along at their pace, but they're still moving along. Is it always like in sync with everybody else in the classroom? Maybe not, but that's okay. It's their pace. And success is measured by an individual role, not by how are we comparing ourselves to the rest of the group, because that's going to get us nowhere. And when I see people trying to take special education out of the general education classroom itself and try to always isolate it and say, well, they just can't be in this space. It's not about how long can we keep them in there. It's what is meaningful to them during their day. What is the appropriate amount of time? So the more questions that we get to ask regarding the individualized attention that each student needs, it's actually doing the best for them. And then when the peers and the other staff member get to see for themselves, wow, this really worked. How can I do better with the next student that might need this kind of support during their day? and out in the community. This really works for my student. This really helps my classmate. What can I do when I'm out in the community here? So it's really kind of an overflow into what we do with our daily lives. And I love it that it starts in the classroom when our kids are young, because we're supposed to be getting to a better place in society that says, how do we include the other people around us? And how do we do it individually without assuming things about that individual. But again, communication and asking the right questions and getting us to that point. Yeah, I love that focus on on communication that you keep bringing back up and just asking the right questions and asking honest questions and, you know, being okay with, you know, failing and getting it wrong, uh, but working together to get it right. And I assume that the the data shows that the kind of approach that you're advocating is is much better uh, for uh, all around educational experiences. Is that accurate? I would have to say that there, when we go back and look at data, when we see the chronic underfunded <laughs> school societies that we currently have, it's a reflection on our priorities as a state, you know, the state of Wisconsin. What's our priority in our education needs there? But we're also chronically underfunded federally. So we may have all these really good, these really good programs, these really good policies that are out there, but what are they really doing? And if we're not funding them appropriately, what's being taken away? So when it comes down to it, if you're looking at data, I 
I question sometimes the validity of what we're getting from that, because if we're not actually doing everything that we could be doing, our data is actually faulted, you know, it's kind of hurting a little bit. But when you're able to actually follow a student, and if we looked at each district and said, this is what, this is what our one-on-one -on -one support looks like, or this is what our, this is the classroom size that we have, and this is the amount of students with disabilities that we have. There's something to be learned from there. So it really gets down to a little bit more of a smaller scale because the bigger that you look at it, <laughs> the, it's a little bit more prob problematic if you're, if you're going too big uh, for a scope. Mm -hmm. But I've worked enough um, with families on an individual basis. And I've also worked with different administration individuals, specifically in Madison and a few other areas that when we see change from our leaders and you see it overflow into the classroom setting that says let's do better and let's add an extra component instead of just this is good enough you really do see more of a success in that student's outcome than we would and if we say well technically we followed all the guidelines because that's not truly being individualized so it's more about how much how individualized are we how individualized are we being in an IEP versus what did we do technically that was right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense that makes sense uh you're listening to a public affair on 89.9 FM WORT here in Madison uh, we have about 12 minutes left in the show and we're talking with Martha Saravo and Jason Belangi about the Disability Pride Madison, as well as the important work they're uh, doing here in the community to support folks with disabilities. So if you want to join the conversation, now is the time, 608-256-2001, extension 9. Tweet us at Wart Talk or post on our Public Affair Facebook page so we can get your uh, questions on the air. Uh, Jason, I'll turn to you for a second. And so um, Access to Independence, you're the executive director. Uh, it is a nonprofit consumer-controlled independent living center. It provides resources, services, and advocacy to people of all ages with all types of disabilities uh, here in South Central Wisconsin. Well, so what does that look like in practice? Sure. So as you described, um, we're a consumer-run organization, and that's our board of directors our leadership and the people that provide direct services, the majority of us have people have disabilities. I myself have mental health and substance use disabilities and um, we share our lived experience as part of our service delivery, whether it's direct services that we do, uh, things like information and referral, uh, advocacy, skills training, uh, a lot of assistive technology work, uh, things like that to our community impact work, uh, our collaboration with other organizations, our technical assistance we provide, um, and our accessibility services that we do, uh, helping businesses and organizations with improving accessibility and inclusion of people with disabilities. And so we use that lived experience lens in the work that we do. And also because we're cross disability, we're not focusing on one particular type of disability or condition. We're looking at it more holistically because a lot of people have multiple disabilities and multiple identities as well. And so how can we make sure that in what we do doesn't leave people out uh, of that? So it's very encompassing that way. Uh, and our focus is, is having people with disabilities having the ability to live in the community as they choose, where they choose, with whom they choose, 
um, and that systems and, and um, uh, institutions and, as Martha said, our leaders work to reduce and eliminate barriers that keep people from having uh, the, the same opportunities that non-disabled people would have in our communities. So um, I'm just very proud to be part of the organization. We're a network of organizations across uh, the state and the country. And um, again, that, that lived experience is really critical into the work we do. You mentioned something that I think is, uh, I want to just pull out um, from, from what you said, because I think when a lot of people are thinking about disability, maybe in a colloquial sense, they wouldn't necessarily put uh, substance use or even mental health um, concerns in that box. Can you explain um, that kind of expansive definition and why you would locate those things within the framework of disability? Sure. I mean, when you have an aspect um, in your life that creates barriers to your daily living, that creates barriers to successful employment, that creates barriers to education, uh, to the things that you want to do with your life, uh, when something about you um, ha and then uh, other aspects of the, the community around you, um, there are, there's barriers as a result of of those particular disabilities that you may have. Um, that's why we consider that to be part of that. And again, um, we don't want to narrowly define and and speak for what one person's um, identity, and identity and existence is. So I think that's why it's a very expansive view. Um, and also, you know, what, what aspects uh, for mitigating factors do people use to help reduce issues that they have uh, with that to make, to create their own access to, again, daily living and education and so on. So um, a lot of people sometimes just view the a physical disability or an intellectual disability as being just that's disability and it's so much broader than that. Yeah, I think that's again really uh, helpful to, um, to try to help people think a little bit more expansively uh, about what these ideas are. And um, I guess I wanted to just turn back to you for a minute, Martha, to ask you uh, a little bit about um, being, you know, Miss uh, Wheelchair Wisconsin or Ms. I'm sorry, I guess it was a, a Ms. And um, and and you know how how that title came to be, and then what you use that platform for. Yeah, now the Miss Wheelchair Wisconsin has been a really interesting experience because you can get involved in it for a multitude of reasons, and your focus can be whatever your passion is. The only the requirements are being, uh, I think it's over age 18, and you have to be uh, use a wheelchair primarily for your uh, for your mobility need. But there is a there is an empowerment behind it because you get to meet other women who use wheelchairs um, with an array of disabilities and and things that that have followed them in life, and you get to talk about it not only within your local community, but then you actually get to go into nationals and actually see. These other women in other states that are highlighting what they do on a daily basis um, and you really get to get like a sisterhood like they talk about it a lot and if you if someone has not really participated in that type of environment which it's not really like a pageant because it's not focused on pageantry it's actually focused on advocacy and what you're doing to make a difference in your community and so we just call it an event or almost um, like a collaboration of sorts, <laughs> you know, but we really want to highlight 
um, a person uh, who goes above and beyond, who maybe just has this passion that's out there, and maybe they need a little bit of boost. When I got involved in this, because I had gotten so involved with special education, um, with the Madtown Mamas, uh, who's also, we're going to have a Madtown Mamas and Miss Will Wisconsin uh, booth that's kind of collaborating the two together, because there's a lot of work that's integrated, and I've been able to use one platform to kind of highlight the other, because that's exactly what, where my focus was at the time. And not only did it give me a space to make these different connections and the networking, like Jason was talking about, once you get involved in something new, your world kind of opens up and realize, you realize there's other people around you that are talking and doing things that are very similar to yours. And then you no longer have to feel like you're out there doing it alone, where sometimes it does seem that way. But you can say, hey, I'm also talking about this too. What have you done? Kind of use them as a model and go forward with it. And so now I'm a state coordinator because I thought the program was so empowering and important for other people to learn about. And that's why we're having um, several of our alumni are going to be done at the fest as well so we can engage other members of the community, answer some questions, uh, show off the work that we've been doing for a little bit, and just get people reinvolved. That sounds awesome. Yeah, we do have just about four four minutes left here on the show uh, here on A Public Affair. Um, so you mentioned you'll have a booth out there at the festival this weekend. Uh, Jason, what else can people expect to find uh, out at Warner Park this weekend? Sure. Uh, a whole variety of, of uh, performances. Um, there's going to be you know, music, dancing, uh, the um, adaptive recreation activities. We're going to have a number of uh, local organizations and individuals sharing information about their services, their goods, a whole, um, just a whole variety of entities that are participating in this as well. Um, Martha, I know, is going to share just a bit about some of the performances we've got scheduled for uh, Saturday, and I'll let her cover that list. Sure. Yeah, this is, this is what excites me. I'm, I'm wearing like five different hats, <laughs> which is all sorts of fun in and of itself. The, the event is actually kicking off with our wheelchair rugby team, uh, WASA, who they have a lot of players from around Wisconsin and even some that are outside of Wisconsin. Um, but the wheelchair rugby is going to take place on the tennis courts to kick off the event. And that is some good old fashioned fun of people running into others in wheelchairs and throwing a ball around. So we encourage everybody to come out and and check it out first, and they're going to stick around for a little bit. Um, there's also going to be a full stage that's set up with a variety of different people um, that are going to be using it for music. We have a pair dancer coming in from the Brookfield studio who um, I'm, her and I are uh, students together uh, at the studio, but she has some very beautiful pieces um, that she can do as a solo, and she has competed in the World Pair Dance Competition uh, last year, and I believe she placed fourth. And then this year, we were part of the first ever uh, para dance competition that was just in Michigan a couple weeks ago. Um, we have some magicians that are going to be showing up later on the day, the Arts for All Choir. There's going to be some uh, kid activities there and a lot of uh, some other vendors that have things for families to kind of look into, like either brochure-wise that are a little bit more adulty, and then other stuff that's a little bit more uh, fun stuff to kind of bring in kids and families together. 
Awesome. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a great event. I wish I was in Madison this weekend to attend, but I, I really hope that listeners uh, will get out there. Uh, that actually brings us uh, to the end of our hour. Time uh, flies, I guess, you know, when you're having fun. Uh, so we're going to have to leave it there. Um, but our guest today in the first half of the show, again, was Professor Joe Shu, author of Constellating Home, Trans and Queer Asian American Rhetorics from Ohio State University Press. And we've just been talking with Jason Belongi, Executive Director of Access to Independence, and Martha Saravo, founding men- member of Madtown Mamas and Disability Rights Advocates. Jason and Martha, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, and- Absolutely. Uh, great conversation. And uh, Madison, I want to thank you uh, for listening today. I want to thank you for letting me be on the air off and on for 10 years. It's been a trip. Uh, thanks to Rochelle and Jade for getting the show produced today. Chuck for engineering. Uh, again, be sure to get out to Warner Park this Saturday from 12 to 5 p.m. for Disability Pride Madison. In the meantime, uh, please stay tuned and listen to BookBeat, where we're going to have Stu Levitan in conversation with Ben Hubing, author of George Wallace in Wisconsin, The Divisive Campaigns That Shaped a Civil Rights Legacy. I hope you all have a fantastic week. I'm your host, Karma Chavez, and this is A Public Affair. With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and support it Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and support it Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and support it Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and support it Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take it